0: From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in meaningful, motivating Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game Does talk gaming and game development.
1: I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games.
0: I'm Stephen McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. In this week's episode, we talk to Ellen Burns Johnson, instructional designer, on what it's like to make educational games. And so, if everyone's ready, let's start.
2: Hi, Ellen. Hey.
0: Welcome to the clubhouse.
2: This is amazing.
0: (laughs) Uh, So tell us a little bit about you and why we thought to bring you in.
2: Well, I can answer the first part of that. Uh Um, uh, I'm an instructional designer. Uh, I've been doing that for about six years. Before that, I was a teacher. Um, And I've also been a gamer and game enthusiast for all my life and recently have been getting into game development, mostly through Glitch and through um, the great people involved in the glitch community, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of overlap. I, as I've been exploring both of those universes more, um, there's just a lot of overlap between designing uh, instructional experiences that are really interactive mm-hmm. and and designing games. Especially, I usually do e-learning, so I do digital learning experiences and digital games. So there's not just a lot of overlap in like the, some of the tools and some of the structures that you use, but the way that you capture the player's attention is the same way that you want to capture the learner's attention. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. The more that I learn about both of those practices, kind of the more they're converging on each other, which is super exciting. And I'm assuming that's partly why you guys wanted me here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. One of the things I, I like that you have a uh, kind of a manifesto about uh, like what's wrong with e-learning games. Cause there's so many are bad. I've heard you kind of approach that topic from time to time, yeah. like that you're, you're
3: sort of on a mission.
0: <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, and the company I work for, Allen Interactions, um, the founder, the company's been around for 20 years, mm-hmm. and the founder, uh, Dr. Michael Allen, I mean, that's really that's really his manifesto. And the, the books that he's written, um, he talks about that every single time. And, it, you know, you don't have to have a book out there saying that most e-learning is bad to yeah. be able to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I think it, a lot of e-learning is boring. And when you're trying to learn something, boring is bad. Because in order to learn something, you need to pay attention to it. Right. And if you're bored, you're not paying attention. So it's just fundamentally not going to work. I think, and we can get into this more more in the conversation as we kind of dive into it, but a lot of our paradigm around learning is get through the experience and check a box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get the A. Do the thing that you were told to do to be able to... You know, cross that off your list. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really mean that you learned something. It yeah. doesn't mean that you learned something valuable. It doesn't mean that you can do anything differently, which really is the point of learning.
0: Right. The right. point
2: of education is to teach people things that they can use. And if you just take quizzes and then forget everything, <laughs> is that learning? Right. No, you're just taking a quiz so you can get a score. And because I think a lot of our educational experiences, in our culture are structured that way. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a huge paradigm shift to completely change that and think, okay, no, it's not actually a learning experience unless the person's paying attention.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that's so different in games. Like the games have the opportunity for you to fail and mess up and try new things and figure stuff out. But like games will constantly test you on the skills that you've learned in the past. Mm -hmm. And like, change that and manipulate that in a way so that you have to keep on, you have to keep on your terms, but you have to keep learning. You have to keep understanding how the game works and how the systems work and stuff. Yeah. And that's something that our educational system does not have.
2: <laughs> no. Right. Like every game is a learning experience. Mm-hmm. You can't play a game without learning, mm-hmm. but we don't, they're not described that way because in our, in our culture, learning is, is something that happens in a classroom or it's something that you take quizzes around. Right. But learning is fundamental to being human. Learning is, like talking. Learning is like having relationships or friendships. It's it's not something that you can only do in a classroom or yeah. in one one thing. So for that's, sure. that's kind of what we try to work from. That's the framework that we work from when we're doing instructional design. At mm-hmm. least I try to. Don't always get to. <laughs> but.
4: So here's my big question, I think I'm I'm sure you probably won't have the concrete answer, but like <laughs> how do you make games, how do you make these games fun? How do you make learning fun?
3: (laughs) That's that's like your whole job.
2: (laughs) My whole job. We have
0: 15 minutes. (laughs) This
2: feels like my work. It's like, okay, um, we are going to give you a small budget and you need to make something that's 15 minutes long, but it needs to be meaningful and fun and actually accomplish something. (laughs) (laughs) Go. Go. Uh, So I can tell you that the way that most people approach creating a learning experience, whether it's going to be in a game or whether it's going to be in something that's called e-learning, or whether it's going to be in a classroom, mm-hmm. anything. The most most people start by thinking, "What what topic are we covering?"
4: Uh-huh.
2: If you want to make an experience really fun, you have to start with a different question. Oh, and that's what do you want people to do? What okay. do you want them to do with the information, or what's you know what's the skill that you're trying to get people to acquire? What mm-hmm. what are they going to do with this? You have to be focused on the verbs. Yeah, and so when you have, start thinking about that, it, it to me it feels a lot more like user experience design almost, like, okay, what what's bringing this person to this app? What are they trying to use it for? And so if you think about a learning experience from, from that perspective, then you start thinking about, okay, so I'm, they're going to need to be able to do something with this information. How do I get them to practice that mode of thinking or those skills in the learning environment? Because a lot of another thing that we tend to do is we tend to give a bunch of information first, and then we make people practice it. So you have to sit through a bunch of stuff Mm -hmm. and then you get the chance to apply it. Mm -hmm. Do games do that sometimes? And we hate that.
3: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) We actively avoid that. (laughs) We
2: actively avoid it. Like you learn the game by playing the game and it introduces you to the skills just a little bit at a time Mm -hmm. and the environment a little bit at the time. You know, you don't have to read like a history of a novel of the world in a novel before you start reading the novel. You just start reading the novel and it's learning is the same way. You learn skills and you learn, you learn things Best when you are practicing using them in the same context that you will actually be using them outside of the learning environment. So you t- the idea is you build the learning environment in a way that scaffolds people to that. Hmm. You build it with some of the systems and structures of the real world in place, uh-huh. but it's an approximation, right? Because you don't just, you know, if you're teaching someone to do taxes, you don't just like say, okay go do your taxes. I mean, some people have to do that. That's yeah. kind of maybe how we all started. But if you were teaching someone to do that, you would start with a simplified version of it with some of the simple calculations and some of the simple parts of the form. And you build on that from, from that yeah. point. But the best way to, the best way to learn it is by doing it a little bit at a time, yeah. adding more complexity mm-hmm. as yeah. you go along.
4: I like, I like the way you frame that, like figure out what it is you're trying to get the player to do instead of what you're trying to teach the player. Uh, Cause that's how, I'm always saying this in the show. That's how you should approach your game. Figure out what the heck you're trying to do first and then do that. Yeah. Um, I've been re- re- recently working on um, a bunch of different uh, educational games, games that are trying to teach people about certain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is this is how we're trying to approach it, too. Like, we want to make the game fun. But we also want to make sure that we focus on what it is that the players are trying to do and have that teach the subject that we're trying to teach. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's that's a wonderful way to go about it.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, too many of these experiences, like it's the cliche. It's just like an interactive slideshow kind of thing. It's Uh it's it's digital for its own sake, rather than it actually being using any aspect of the medium. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it's kind of amazing how people don't realize that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, And like putting it that way, I think is really valuable to like say like you know why is it this way and what is yeah what what are you trying to do with it Mm -hmm. Uh, rather than just like what form are you trying to take, because that's less important,
2: I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's the the type of interactivity that you choose for your game is meaningful when it's connected to the way that the learning needs to be applied. Yeah. Um, fundamentally, like a drag and drop interaction isn't more fun than a multiple choice interaction. It's mm. not more fun fundamentally. It depends on what you're choosing and how you're using that interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, like would a Telltale game be more fun if you had to drag your choices to the character that you wanted to speak? (laughs)
4: No, that would make it a lot worse. It would make it
2: worse. Like, Or if you had a slider, like, okay. I mean, no, like Telltale games are multiple choice. Uh yeah, And they're awesome. Like I have a lot of fun with them. It's not that multiple choice is a bad interaction, that it's not fun. It's the way that it's implemented. Mm
0: -hmm. And then on the other side of that, you have uh, e-learning that has gamification which just teaches you how to play the game and not and like and not actually the right job. and, and yeah. using that as a way to sort of impart knowledge but that's not useful either.
2: Well, you know, that's interesting. So, I think of I think of gamification and game-based learning as different things. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, I think gamification is kind of using the structure and the aesthetics of games to motivate a learner to get through non-game content. Um, and there is There is a lot of literature and evidence suggesting that it is effective. Some implementations of gamification are effective at getting people to go through content.
3: Hmm. Okay. Okay.
2: But gamification to me, and I think to a lot of people isn't, isn't necessarily, I mean it's fine. Okay. If I get points and I get badges and leaderboards and stuff for my job, great. But it it still doesn't capture the richness of a game experience. Mm -hmm. And I think game-based learning is where the mechanics of the game are aligned with the skills you're trying to impart.
4: Sure. sure. Yeah. I, the way I think of gamification is gamification has extrinsic uh, motivation, whereas like game-based learning is intrinsic yeah. motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah, like you hit the, you hit the nail on the head with
3: that.
2: Right. Exactly. Like you gamification, you can take the same platform and you can change the content that you're delivering, and it basically is the same experience. But game-based learning, like you can't teach the same to me. Like you can't teach the same skills using the same game because right. the game mechanics are innately tied to what you're trying to get, to get people to do mm-hmm. you know they're actually in the game in a game-based learning environment people are doing the mental things you need them to do when they leave the game
4: yeah yeah that like reminds me of like different things like i've i had to uh analyze or look up information about games because i was really into them mm-hmm. <laughs> and i want to do better in them uh, uh i do that a lot of the times with like fighting games and stuff i have to go research and look at frame data and figure out what is a high and what is a, I I guess they do that in training a lot of the time, but like, yeah, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I'm intrinsically motivated because I want to do better in the game. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Like you have to do that kind of stuff in uh, the point and clicks, Martha, right? Like you have to, I guess in some of the puzzles.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm hoping that you won't have to do that for any of the things that I'm making. Okay.
0: Well, that's the point Ellen, you were making about like, being able to just jump in to the experience and have that give you everything you need, yeah, right. Like, uh, like games uh, have that same demand on them, right? Which is why Stephen, the car washing puzzle, you hate yes. it so much. <laughs> um, and so, like that, I think that that attitude brought to uh, an, something that's meant to be a broader educational experience. Um, people will forget that because they don't realize that. Yeah, the game is trying to teach you the systems of the game. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But when you're, and so when you make something that's educational, you think, oh, well, it's, there's more to it than that. But th- it's the same thing,
2: I guess. Right? It's hard to talk about this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it, well, I, you know, um, I think one of the interesting things is that even, even as a game teaches you how to, how it should be played, like how, how you need to, what skills you need and what you need to think about it to progress in the game, there, there's just so much going on. Um in terms of it's not just the cognitive skills that like, ooh, big chunk of snow fell off the building. <laughs> <laughs> I was told I could say that on the podcast. <laughs> it happened and I did. It um, smells
0: it smells a lot here. <laughs> yeah. Here in the clubhouse across the street, there's the the, one of the university buildings and Ellen's just been like staring at it this
2: whole time. <laughs> Chunks of snow that are like ten feet long falling off the, you they're Aren't any people, thankfully, because it's Sunday <laughs> yeah, right that, <laughs> now. <laughs> Man. Anyway, um, there's there's a ton of stuff that you're learning. It's not just the cognitive the cognitive tasks, like being able to analyze the gameplay or prioritize what you're going to be doing. Um, it's not just the physical capabilities you have to move like, your avatar to make selections and things like that. But there's also this huge, um, huge emotional skill set. Yeah. So, and, and that doesn't always. I mean. I think sometimes we're aiming towards emotional experiences. At least we should be right when we're playing, mm-hmm. when we're designing games. Mm-hmm. But in terms of emotional skills, like that's a really weird framework. Um, to give you an example of what I'm talking about, I really like the game Thoth. Have, have any of you? Played oh,
4: it? I know what that is. That's the game where. No, maybe I don't. <laughs> <laughs> i you be wrong, oh, I get really excited for a moment. <laughs> I did, and I forgot.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a twin stick shooter where you basically you're playing a little circle. Uh-huh. and you shoot against these evil seeming cosmic squares yeah uh so and it's really tough it's a really tough game and especially for me like i'm not i'm not great at um like twitch reflexes kind of stuff and uh-huh. that's what this this game is but for me it wasn't really so much about the twitch reflexes like each the physics of each level are slightly different and you have to you have to die a lot to be able to figure it out but for me like the skill that i got from that game um, the most important thing that I learned from that game was the, the emotional skill of being able to just set aside failure and try immediately again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just set it aside and go and not be frustrated and just keep working at it. Mm-hmm. Um and just en- enjoy enjoy the experience of playing without needing the feeling of winning.
4: Yeah, not a lot sense. of people can say oh, sure. they can't have that.
2: <laughs> it took a long time. Yeah, it was yeah. really frustrating. <laughs> but like there are the part of the way that the game is structured encourages that because when you die, it's not punitive. It's just you're your circle is gone <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and there's this kind of scary noise. And then you press one button and you're starting again. Uh-huh. You know, it doesn't, it, it makes it really easy for you to start over and keep learning. So the game really supports you in it, your productive failure. And that is learning. Yeah. Um. So it reinforces that emotional skill of being able to persevere. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Now, I'm sure the game designers thought of that. <laughs> um, but did they think of it as a learning, did they think of it intentionally as a learning experience? I'm mm-hmm. assuming not, mm-hmm. but it is, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be used that way in a classroom or, you know, in someone's personal, it could be used with that intention. It yeah. just wasn't, in- it wasn't designed that way, even though it has that capability.
0: So how do you design failure into a, an e-learning experience? Yeah. Right. Cause they ve- very much, that's not, usually the motivation when you're designing those things. It's sort of it is a natural to have the player experience failure repeatedly. Right? Mm.
2: We definitely definitely believe in that. Yeah. Okay. We I do try to design opportunities for failure mm-hmm. in a learning experience. So the framework that we use, um okay, so just to kind of back up, uh in the work that I do when we're doing e-learning, we're typically doing it for bigger companies. Um the budgets are a lot smaller than you have, well <laughs> And you have for a typical game. That's not true, um, <laughs> but they're not really big and they have to get done really fast. You know, you have, I think the average life cycle is like 12 weeks and mm-hmm. that can be, I mean, it just, the, there's such a range of what the production quality needs to be. Sometimes, you know, you'll need to make 15 minutes of seat time, quote unquote. Um, it's average, like what a user will take to get through that experience. Other times you're trying to make something that's an hour long and, Sometimes you have the same timeline and <laughs> sometimes you don't. I mean, it's just really, there's a lot of variety. Uh-huh. Um, so to be able to get get to something that's meaningful and memorable and motivational in that short period of time, we start with a framework called CCAF. So we ask, we ask the clients, the people who understand what we're trying to teach, like, okay, what's the context that people do this, this thing in? Um, what, is it, what does it look like to them? What do they see around them? What, who, who's around them? What noises do they hear? What, what do they feel um, what kind of pressures are they under? All right, what is what is the challenge? So the first C is context, the second C is challenge. Um, and that's like, okay, what, what would prompt somebody to act? Like how would they know that this action needs to be taken? So like, okay, you need to alert the security, you're building security that someone is here that shouldn't be. what What do you see? What in the context indicates that you need to act? And what are the consequences if you don't? What are the consequences if you do? Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of ties into the challenge. The activity is like the actual interaction. So, are you clicking? Are you dragging? Like, what's the best interactive metaphor for the action you need to take in real life? And then the feedback is the consequences. We try to depict the consequences of your actions, whether they're, you know, appropriate or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to depict that somehow, not just say correct or incorrect, but, yeah. you know, if you, if you, for example, one of the courses I'm working on right now is a information security course and they're talking about um, spam emails, which are constantly changing, right? So this is a big topic that we have to do over and over again because the tactics that's that scammers use um, to fish people are always changing. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things we do is we recreate an actual like phishing email and we use the language that someone would use if they were trying to fish someone at this company. Oh, yeah. And we have like you know, a fake link and like a logo that looks realistic but isn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, and we ask people, like the challenge that we ask people to do is to identify, first of all, is it a problem or not? Is this email okay or not? And the next thing is, okay, what are all the warning signs? If this is not an okay email, wh- what in this email suggests that? Um, yeah. And if But you
0: don't want people guessing good. and then getting it right and then feeling like they learned something if they really didn't.
2: Right. If they, if they get it wrong, we have to show them what can happen. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason for that is it, you have to show consequences; otherwise, people aren't going to feel anything. And right. if you don't feel anything, then it's just going to go elsewhere. It's not important. If if the learner doesn't feel something when they're learning, mm-hmm. then it's not important enough for them to remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we try to say like, "Oh, hey, well, you know, your computer has malware on it now, and it's spreading to everybody you email. <laughs> <sighs> Good job. <laughs>
3: nice." Yeah,
4: <laughs> that reminds me of a game I played. I think last week or something called. It was called Fake News, where you create fake news and you try to get as many followers as possible, retweeting your stuff. Yeah, that was interesting because like <laughs> I got to see what it was like to do that, and it was mm-hmm. weird in a bad way. Yeah, <laughs> but also in a good way. Was that a global
2: game jam game? No, I don't oh, think okay. it
4: was. It was made. It was made from by. I
0: think it was made by a professor.
2: Oh, so interesting. Okay. I
0: can't remember, but well, maybe I'll put a link in the in the show notes. Um, yeah, some. I mean, some of the best experiences are are ones that are that have like a heightened or exaggerated versions of reality. Yeah, because then they become metaphors. Like they don't have to be literal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They can. They can impart an idea more than an ex- a direct experience. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like an example like that seems like a really good way of making it sort of fun and engaging. And you exaggerate it without exaggerating the idea. Right. I
2: mm-hmm. think.
3: And yeah. That, and,
0: it's like a tricky balance. Yeah, and you get to like try it, which. I mean, I don't
4: want to actually try it, especially after I've done it now. Yeah, right? <laughs> but.
2: yeah, you don't want people learning about malware and and phishing emails by clicking on a phishing email right, and getting right. malware. Like yeah. You want to give them a safe place to experiment with those concepts and, and how to interact with those things without actually infecting your entire company network, mm-hmm. right?
4: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem good.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but if you're just saying, well, malware is bad and you shouldn't click on emails that you don't recognize, it's just not enough. Like everyone knows that. It's like saying, you should eat more vegetables. Everyone knows that. <laughs> <laughs> everyone knows that. People don't. Why? It's, it's not because people don't know. There's a difference between knowing and acting. Yeah, mm-hmm. for
4: sure. For sure. Um, I want to know about like, how to encourage people to learn about uh, the topics you're trying to teach them outside of the game. Cause like oh, when I was talking about with the fighting games and stuff, like I actively want to learn about the frames and stuff because I want to get better at the fighting game. And so I know that like that happens in in some games, like in in Fez, for example. I I brought it up on the show before, but like I learned about cryptography so I could get all of the stupid uh, <laughs> cubes or whatever you needed to get. It's really frustrating, but like I learned something from it and it, it was beneficial. And I'm wondering like how do you get people to uh, after playing through the game. Spark, spark something in them to have them research more about certain topics.
2: Well, that's really interesting. I don't have a lot of direct experience with that structure. We, we okay. always, we do try to, in, in any of the interactions and activities that we create, we try to give people opportunities to go further and learn more if they want to. Yeah. Um, we, try to level, we try to identify a base level of skill that mm-hmm. people should be able to apply when they're done with the learning experience. Okay. And then we try to make it essential that they can demonstrate that skill to that level in the learning experience just to be able to complete it. So we mm-hmm. talked about there's more snow. Um <laughs> we talked about we talked about like the idea of just sitting through an experience and checking a box mm-hmm. not being indicative of real learning. Yeah. Well, one thing you can do is you can structure your learning experience so that to quote unquote pass, you actually have to apply the skill mm-hmm. successfully. Yeah. So if you if you have an activity in your learning experience that's that's challenging to the level that you need it to be, um, so that you can feel confident that learners can apply the skill when they leave, then uh then you're then you're done. If they've passed, then they can do the thing. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um,
2: if you want to encourage people to go and learn more about a specific topic after the fact, I think the best thing you can do is to make that part of the experience really interesting and sure. then make it easy for them to dig in afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of an
4: example. That was a strategy I was thinking of yeah. was like Maybe you get really engrossed in a, in the narrative or a story of something, and then uh, and the characters like uh, talk about uh, astrophysics. I can't come up with another topic, <laughs> uh, and so like uh, you read about their thing, and you're like, "Wow, why are they so interested in astrophysics? I want to know more about astrophysics." Mm-hmm. So you like look it up on Wikipedia or something, and that leads you to articles, and that leads you to stu- the studies, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I don't know, it might spark something just because you're relating to a
0: character or or a narrative choice or whatever. Well, the the challenge must be that, you know, astrophysics is pretty interesting. right? <laughs> True. Email True. security is not. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, right. Like when you're saying you put that, that motivation to understand in the experience mm-hmm. because you have to apply it mm. because you, you can't count on people sort of taking that hook and then going off on their own. Mm-hmm. Cause that, I mean, that'd be great if they did, but like you can't count on that. Right. Right.
2: Right. Right. And, and that's, that's exactly right. Like, well, and I would say email security is really interesting when you are attacked.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah.
4: You really wouldn't know about it at that point. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs>
2: and so it's a saying that we have at work that the, the learner's favorite topic is themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone likes learning about themselves. Everyone likes to think about how they'll get out of a situation. So we do try to put the learner kind of, kind of as the protagonist as much mm-hmm. as we can. It's not always possible. Um, but you want to be able to present them with scenarios and situations that they can really quickly relate to, mm-hmm. right? Right. So they can think, okay, well, if I get an email from Amazon saying that my package has been shipped, but I don't remember ordering this, like, is that actually Amazon? Or should I check the email more closely to see if it came from a different website? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing, like, you know, I don't. Know, there's just a lot, a lot of other stuff like false yeah. reporting you have to deal with too. But yeah, that's yeah. that's I think two to nuance into that specific topic and (laughs) not necessarily broadly applicable to learning. Well,
0: you want to make people feel savvy for knowing these things, right? You want to make that you want to give them, you want to make them feel good about learning it. Yeah. Like, you know, if you can't make them like an excited enthusiast to the topic, you like, you want to just relate it to their experience
2: at Mm. least. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fundamental. It has to be, it has to be relevant to the individual, which is interesting. A lot of, a lot of training out there is just kind of templatized. So, Mm Um, There's something in our industry that is called off-the-shelf training, and so there are companies that will make okay training products that are, you know, video-based or whatever. Um, They might be interactive, but it's it's generic, so it doesn't speak to the actual context of that specific company. Yeah, um, who purchases it? They just purchase it off the shelf, and then they have all their their employees go through that. But at a completely different company that might be in a completely different industry, like you might have one. One company that's in the airline industry take an off the shelf training and a company that is in like uh customer service take the exact same training uh, they're yeah. not they're not the off the shelf stuff with you know some degree of exception is not tailored to the specific learning audiences it doesn't reflect their individual context and that's the strength about being able to do a custom work that that we do is that we can every story can be the, the details can be really tailored to. That company and what those people experience, mm-hmm. things like that.
0: To me, that feels like that effort seems like the exception, but it really should be the standard because that off-the-shelf approach, like like I know that can be counterproductive. And the the example I have is look, I worked for a uh, advertising firm as part of a big company, and I had one of these off-the-shelf things for data security. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you you keep your clients' files safe, right? The things that that the company is under NDA about. That you handle correctly, and what the the learning that the the thing that make everybody go through when they when they hire you, like it was pretty much just a click through experience. They had a couple of like, what would you do in these scenarios? But all those scenarios were very focused on um, business plans and uh, like uh, financial earnings, and Uh what happens if you uh, let your briefcase get stolen? And this (laughs) is a bunch of like you know, 20-something art directors. uh, (laughs) My briefcase. (laughs) Who are are, like passing things around on Dropbox, right? Because that's faster than the company's internal data network. But all of that is, I mean, every day was just hundreds of direct violations of this data policy because it was pretty low stakes for the work. But it it meant a lot to the clients and that's why the learning was in place. But because it was so weird, Mm and didn't make any sense to this, wasn't contextual at all. Everybody basically, not just ignored it, but ridiculed it. Like mm-hmm. a, as a policy, even though it was a pretty, it was not, it was not that hard to fo- follow. Mm-hmm. It's just that no one took it seriously because it was presented in a context that was so wildly inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And so like, it, like that's the, always the example I think of is like, you can really do harm mm-hmm. when you don't do the work to actually make it a proper environment. Yeah. You're, right?
2: send, you're sending the signal to your, to your learners that you actually don't care about their individual experience. Exactly. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah.
0: That's bad definitely
2: bad. I agree. <laughs> I agree that it's bad.
0: <laughs> there must there must be a lot of agreement about bad things in your line of work.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we have so many conversations about what's bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I understand it. It's it's expensive. It's expensive to pay for Oh yeah. to pay for that level of customization and I think unless unless you happen to be a decision maker who's well versed in learning psychology or well-versed enough in learning psychology to see the difference. It can sometimes not be obvious what the return on investment is.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, it's like you need a learning, like a learning course on how to pick learning courses.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I should make a game about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's super meta. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it's, you have to, again, you have to look at what the motivation is behind purchasing the course. Is it mm-hmm. actually because they wanted people to do things differently? Mm-hmm. Or did they just need to be able to say that they had training on this so that they couldn't get sued? Yeah, yeah. That's depressing to think about, but those th- those decisions are real. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's just like, sometimes it's like, especially with stuff like compliance training, it's just a, ma- it's a matter of weighing the risk of an incident against the cost of better training, which.
4: <laughs> yeah
2: that (laughs) (laughs) yeah
4: well yeah i
0: guess a lot of times that boils down to a matter of money
2: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well that
0: that must be a bit disheartening that a lot of times the clients who hire you are hiring you not for reasons that you might wish they were hiring you for
2: Mm, yeah well i just like to do the work (laughs) Uh (laughs) i mean the thing is the thing is uh no matter who we're working with and kind of where they are i feel like there's a benefit there's always a benefit because, because there's always an opportunity to advocate for the learner and for a better learning experience. Even if you're, you know, even if you end up being hired to build something that's essentially a a glorified PowerPoint, there's always something you can do to enhance the experience. Even if you're doing a PowerPoint, like the way the content is presented, if you use more of like personal details, if you use characters and use story, that makes it more interesting and therefore it makes it more effective. Always an opportunity. Uh, The other thing too is, and this isn't so much of a, so much of a, avenue for my studio because we have we really do high relatively high level production stuff we have mm-hmm. a, a lot of developers and media artists and things but at, at an e-learning course learning interactivity doesn't have to look fancy to be effective yeah. you know like um there's a woman kathy moore she's an instructional designer out of australia and she talks a lot about using twine as a method of training people and she has a really cool little uh, demo scenario where she like you go through this twine game that takes about five to 10 minutes and you learn a fake language. Like you learn five or six words in a fake language while you're going through it. It's really cool. It's really effective. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't need to be, you know, it doesn't need to be a full blown HTML five web app or something even made in unity and and LinkedIn with the learning management system. It just depends again on what you were trying to get people to do. Yeah. So,
4: yeah. Uh, I was going to ask about like, uh, game genres and stuff like how what kinds of games do you normally make your games wow that was a weird statement <laughs> Can <you repeat> that? <laughs> yeah. like what kind of games do you normally make in order to teach people about learning like do you make do you make puzzle games do you make
0: action games do you make RPGs
3: yeah that's a really good question
2: <laughs> um,
0: I would like to play a 90 hour JRPG
2: like, <laughs>
0: for like compliance training <laughs>
2: I don't think that exists, <laughs> but maybe it should. <laughs> now I want to make it. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. I think I think the structure that we probably use the most often would be like a branching conversation, mm. um, because a lot, in some form or another, some of them are more complex than others. But a lot of the skills that people need in the workplace are interpersonal. Sure, and they're also the they're also really tough to teach consistently because if you're teaching them in a classroom, then the interpersonal skills are very much uh, shaped by the facilitator Mm -hmm. because the facilitator is a person. They're also an individual and they have a specific communication style. And it also depends on who you're in the classroom with because you're interacting with them. But there are a lot of, um, there's definitely an opportunity to create, I mean, you know this, you can create really rich conversations with characters in a digital environment, Yep. really, really rich ones. And because you can control the flow of the conversation and the words that are being used, you can you can have that experience require the learner or the player to apply certain conversational skills, either successfully or unsuccessfully, and then recover if they need to get a conversation back on track. They can ask questions. They can push back. You can you can do a lot of that um, and have it feel really compelling in mm-hmm. a digital environment. So a lot of a lot of I think most of the game based learning that we use uh, in my job is is kind of around the branching scenarios um, mm-hmm. track. But it really, really, it can change a lot. I mean, we don't, we we like to be on the cutting edge of what we're doing. So we do get a lot of clients who come in and say, well, we kind of want something like this, but we've never seen anybody do it before. So figure it out.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, Which is fun. I like yeah. it. But so one example of something that's completely different is I uh, had a client a couple years ago who was really interested in using game-based learning in their onboarding experience, mm-hmm. and they are an early childhood um, education company uh-huh. that partners with large institutions like colleges and um, like hospitals, medical insurance companies, big corporate campuses to to provide childcare for the people who work there. And they wanted to make their onboarding experience for new employees as you know as rich and as fun as the experience was for the kids who were there in their classrooms, which is great. I love that because Mm -hmm. just because you you know, just because you turn 18 doesn't mean learning just gets to be boring. Now it should be fun all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, although I guess sometimes learning gets boring before 18. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) sad, different topic, different podcast. Um, but yeah, so what we did was, uh, we picked one topic and the topic was like classroom safety. And so we built a little tiny classroom Uh and we built, like a little tiny teacher avatar and a little tiny, a bunch of little tiny kids that just started crawling around and getting into trouble, and so you had to run over all around the classroom and um, like prevent kids from getting hurt. Uh, very much like with the same kind of pacing and situations that you'd find, I mean, the exact same pacing and situations that you'd find in a real infant classroom or yeah. a toddler classroom, and depending on the age group, they were getting into different things. Like the infants would crawl out of sight. Well, law, at least here in Minnesota, is you have to keep them, you have to keep all infants in in sight. You have to actually be able to have line of sight contact to infants. Mm -hmm. If they're toddlers, I don't think, if if they're a different age group, you don't necessarily have to have line of sight, but you have to be able to hear them. Mm -hmm. So there are different laws that are in place for different age groups, and we had to reflect that in the interaction. Um, And it was all based on a timer, because you have to act really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, There were some consequences, like I think there was one situation where a kid that that stung by a bee but the kid was allergic and if you oh, didn't no. follow the steps right then there was like a little emergency pop up. Yeah. Sad.
4: You Man, know? I kind of want to play that game. My mom is a child care specialist. So like that would be I'd be basically doing my mom's job. <laughs> yeah. And it would be fascinating to yeah. discover how that's like cuz I imagine it's extremely stressful a lot of the time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really fun. I mean that was the entire process was it was amazing to be involved as a designer um, because we get to do a lot of user testing and play Mm -hmm. testing and Mm -hmm. seeing people who actually did the work, go through the game and say, yep, this happens. Yeah. (laughs) And to get things wrong, we had veteran teachers come in and play the game Mm -hmm. and they made mistakes. Mm -hmm. Well, good. (laughs) Yeah. We want Mm -hmm. them to make mistakes. That means they didn't know something that they needed to know. They might not have learned if they were just given a piece of Mm -hmm. paper or something to listen to, you know, was playing the game and actually being put at risk in that situation Mm -hmm. having having the risk of failure which made them pay attention and help them learn Mm
4: -hmm. man that feels so powerful yeah
0: well it's it it, it's interesting because that's a more rich more gamey kind of experience than maybe what you normally do but it's really the same it's virtualizing the experience yes and so it it isn't really any different it's just the, the form it takes is different and that is not that big a differentiator other than maybe being a little more exciting to work on.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. Like the mechanics are really different. Yeah. Um, the re- mechanics were, were different than a lot of the interactive training that we build. Yeah. But the process of getting there wasn't really any different. And we're always, I mean, I'm always trying to push the envelope with something, even if it's like, okay, we're doing this kind of training, which means it's probably going to end up being this, this model, because if the learning experience is, if the target um if the target behor- performance or behavior is the same, mm-hmm. then you're going to want a similar structure to get people there. So even if you end up using this, like, similar game structures over and over again, the context is always different and the stories are always different and the mm-hmm. media that you're using to reflect the, the company's brand is really different. And so there's always opportunity to, to be creative and to bring it to life in a different way. Yeah,
0: yeah. A, a recent example that got mainstream attention was also an onboarding thing for KFC. Hmm. Did you hear about this? There's a it was a virtual reality experience where you learned how to do all the stuff at a kitchen yeah. in KFC and it was it was, and it was very it was silly because it was sort of branded like their advertising is branded mm-hmm. but it was meant to like for new employees but then they just released it for free for everybody yeah. oh. <laughs> because it was like fun enough apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you see a lot of interest in uh, maybe just because it's exciting, like VR experiences and more immersive experiences, stuff like that? And do you ever have to talk a client down from some of that stuff?
2: <laughs> I'm really glad you asked about that. That's a that's a really big topic in yeah. the training industry right now. Is um, is using VR and when it's when it is useful um, to get into that framework? Yeah, I, th- I think with something like like cooking, I can, I think it can be really really beneficial because Uh you the the physical environment is so critical being able to just to get your unconscious mind comfortable with what's around you and be able to move and you know navigate around other people in the space i think that vr um because it has that 3d component and it because it puts you in there is really a powerful um powerful tool for for that i think that when it comes to like compliance training and checking emails (laughs) it's it's probably not a good use of resources
4: Uh yeah you could sit in a virtual desk and check your virtual emails. Yeah. Right. Oh, that reminds me of one of those games we played during the the ludum dares. That oh, was a yeah. stressful game yeah. where you like you had to check your email and pay attention to people and all these things were happening around <laughs> you and I was just like
0: I just want to look at the computer. <laughs>
4: that, was, that was a game.
0: Well, it's it it, it uh, an experience like that for might be exciting to do, but you would come away excited about that experience, not about the, the content. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It would overshadow it in a way.
2: Potentially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it can't be done and it can't be done well. Sure. It's again, it's just a matter of, is it, is the additional fidelity worth the improvement in the learning? Yeah. yeah. Right. And so that's why it's important to have clear targets as much as possible when you start, because no one's going to learn everything. There's a limited amount of space in the hum- I mean, I don't know if we figured it out, but like, <laughs> you're not going to get someone to become a compliance expert when their job is troubleshooting or something like being an analyst. There's not, you know, they have other stuff to be doing. Right. So you have to figure out what's the, what do you actually need them to be able to do? Right. right. Um, I think it'd be cool to, I think it'd be cool to try to make a compliance game in VR just for the heck of it. <laughs> but I don't know if I'd ever yeah. recommend it for, mm-hmm. for a client because it's just a lot of, like then the effort is actually being going, is really going into making it a VR experience. Right. It's not into making effective training. It's to mm-hmm. making a VR experience. And if yeah. you're just going to put effort into making a VR experience, there's probably a better way, like mm-hmm. a better path for that. Right, it right. depends on what the goal is.
0: Well, you said you'd like to try it, but <laughs> it does do you do a lot of prototyping and testing for things like that? Because you, you have instincts about what works and doesn't, but you don't always know, right?
2: Yeah, we're kind of, um, we're just starting to explore that. Um, in the company right now, so I don't have a great answer for you mm-hmm. at the point at this point, but uh, but yeah, I mean we're we would be prototyping in it. I haven't figured out a great way or have a method yet for doing that yeah. in our space. Um,
0: well, I know that you know mm-hmm. when you work with clients, like they don't they don't give you money for test runs. Like <laughs> it's part of it.
2: Yeah, they just <laughs> give us a budget and we we divide it up. But yeah, I mean it's uh, I don't know it. There are a lot of there are more and more VR experiences that are specifically built around instruction Mm -hmm. um, or learning of some, some sort. Yeah. And it's really, really cool stuff.
1: Really, really cool stuff. Yeah. I've always wanted to make a beekeeping VR game so people could learn how to beekeep. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) That'd be great. Yeah. That's perfect because then you don't, you know, the VR bees are not going to sting you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's
0: true. Yeah. Even experiential, just getting people comfortable with the idea of being in that suit and being in that environment. wouldn't even have to be much more than like, that's a big part of it alone. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, the experiences like that were, were, yeah, virtualizing the, the actual space, um, tons of possibilities there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think anything where the, we're executing on the skill, whether it's an emotional skill or whether it's a cognitive skill or a physical skill, whenever I'm executing on this skill requires some kind of 3d movement, mm-hmm. then VR is a really good candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I really hate heights. I hate heights. I'm so afraid of heights. And I was in a I was in VR the other day, and I can't remember what what experience it was. I can't remember what game, but I ended up on the top of a skyscraper on like a wooden plank. Oh, and I was walking out over the street, and everyone who was around me was like, "Jump off the plank! Jump off the plank!" Oh my goodness! I'm like I can't do this. I can't do this. And I I, I literally could not move my feet. I wanted to, I wanted to do it, but I could not move my feet mm-hmm. off the plank. My mm-hmm. brain. the lizard brain was just not doing it. The lizard brain was not going to let me do it. I had to close my eyes and move my foot like one foot off to the side (laughs) to get that part of my brain to recognize that it was an illusion and there was still a floor. Mm -hmm. And then I could step it off. I could step off the, the plank, even with my eyes open and just, I was like floating hundreds of feet off the ground. And it was really, it was, it was really cool to kind of observe my mind, adopt that new reality. Yeah, And it was, um, it taught me a skill. It actually taught me like a skill that I can use to be more in control of my emotions when I'm in a place that's high. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to like climb to the top of the Carlson building and put my flat, <laughs> but you know, it I,
0: didn't teach you wily coyote skills. <laughs> it, didn't, it
2: didn't give me any magical cartoon abilities. No. Uh, but it did teach me that if I can, if I can just close my eyes for a bit and like focus on my feet being stable, I can get control of that anxiety. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was just 30 seconds in a VR yeah. experience. Right, incredible. you
0: taught yourself to tell, you, to remind yourself what was real, even though the game was telling you what was false, right? It's kind of almost meta in a way.
2: Yeah, like the game, the game, the visual cues in the game, and the auditory cues in the game were saying you're really high up. You're really high up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the challenge that you know, you think about if you think about the CCAF components I was talking about earlier, um, if you frame that that small moment in terms of CCAF. The context was I was high off the ground in a virtual environment. The challenge was step off the plank, and the activity was move your feet,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the feedback was open your eyes and see if you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't right, so I I that it's a really really small example of how that works, but um, that wasn't. It's interesting. I I think that was actually. Part of the experience that that was supposed to was supposed to evoke. Mm. Why why did they put a plank at the top <laughs> of a skyscraper in a VR game? Because they were daring people to to jump off of it. <laughs> like, that's why they did it. Um, did they think of it as a way of teaching emotional skills? Maybe, but uh, but yeah, I I don't think that would be as an that that would not have been nearly as effective. I don't think it could be effective really at all in a two D space. Yeah. It had to be 3D. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it just wouldn't have been real enough to evoke that emotional response for me. And it wouldn't have evoked, it wouldn't have felt risky. And then if it wasn't risky, then I would not have needed to close my eyes and Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have practiced that skill.
4: Cool. Cool. Um, I want to know about examples of things we've all learned from games. I already brought up mine with cryptography. Now I'm a cryptography expert, expert because of the dang game.
0: <laughs> you know, it's it's funny you use that as a positive example because I remember when you talked about it on the show. No, oh, no, it's extremely. It was extremely frustrating when I did it, <laughs> and you described it as a, a a thing you're not interested in knowing. I'm not. I
4: didn't want to know about cryptography, but the game yeah. made me, and right. I didn't even have to
0: do all of that work. That's how strong the experience was.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, I like you I can't bring force a,
0: people to learn something.
2: <laughs> <You laughs> force Steven, at least. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I bring it up. I bring it up because, like, it, it it was, and it was an example of something that, like, it forced me to learn. That forced me. It did force me. It forced me to learn a topic that, like, I wouldn't have otherwise. But like, I felt enriched from it. But it was still frustrating. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's why I keep bringing it up all the time. <laughs> uh, but, anyways, other examples of things you learned from games um, in the past. I know I'm putting people on the spot,
1: but well, in el- my elementary school, we were learning about genetics. Mm-hmm. And they had us play this really cool game that was on the online, and I don't think exists anymore. It's probably made in flash. Uh, and it was these dragons and they all had different traits. and then you would pick two of them and see what if they had an egg which what traits would end up in that baby dragon, and then you could figure out like which traits were dominant and which ones were recessive. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I played that game for hours. It was so cool. It's really cool. For sure.
0: Uh, for me, uh, the, the one that I'm thinking of a lot is, um, is Assassin's Creed. Because it, from the beginning, that game very much was sort of steeped in history. Yeah. And what I, the technique that I thought, and this might not be the best example, but the, the reason I think of it is because it, it motivated me to understand better the context of the story in the game. By taking these little pieces, they would drop little historical hints, and then go looking those things up for real. Yeah. Um, or in the, um, a, a lot of the games have uh, actual um, uh, historical research it, within the game, and they're like codex sort of thing. That like, um, you know, if you're if you're not that ex- interested in all the actiony bits, you can spend time reading mm-hmm. <laughs> like tons of this stuff. Um, and it's it's what's interesting about it is that it mixes it in with this like conspiracy theory stuff, right? Because the Assassin's Creed like lore is like. Famously bananas right yeah. it, it makes no sense it's ridiculous it's very a historical um, it's ac- anachronistic in many places it's 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 an irresponsible historical text <laughs> but what you can kind of tell when you play it that they they know that and they 're not trying to tell you otherwise like they mm-hmm. they're fully aware like it, it has this this um and it motivates you to un- to want one- want to understand the real thing. So when you fight the Pope, for example, at Goodness the end of sake. Assassin's Creed 2, <laughs> yes, it's a thing that happens. It, like the game isn't trying to tell you that anything that that, that, that this Pope could throw a punch. Yeah. Um, it it but it makes you like understand like oh this was the Pope of that time and this is a, a context in which that story it's it's historical fiction in a way that I it felt I don't know I might be giving it too much credit but I always thought it did a really good job of like teasing you about how interesting these things were, right? And then you would go and then you would, you you know, you'd learn a little bit more about it, but you'd never, like as wrong as it all was, it never, you never, it never asked you to believe any of the details. Yeah, It just sort of like teased you out of like, and I always thought that was really good. And um, uh, a, a bit of topical news th- uh, this week, as we're recording, um, Ubisoft just put out their educational mode for Assassin's Creed Origins, mm-hmm. which is a non-action g- version of the game that they're trying to put in schools, where you just walk around ancient Egypt and learn about all the stuff there. And it's it's a very much a, it's the full realization of what Assassin's Creed has always had, but it is now very much specific. And they're giving it away free. Um, outside of the game uh, to educational institutions, that's good. Um, it's really kind of incredible. They, they've modified a lot of the content uh, uh, in the environment, so um, it, it 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 has a lower age rating as well. Mm. So it's it's appropriate for kids mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And I find that just so fascinating that like they would just do that. Like, there's why would they do that? Like, there's no. I think it's because it's part of the series history. Yeah. But also, there's just like someone at that company was like, "Wouldn't it, we have the power to do this? Wouldn't it be great?" And I don't. It's one of those weird things where you. Struggle to find a profit motive, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's incredible. It's really cool, and and so I, I think that I, I always look, think that series does a pretty good job of yeah. of teasing those things out in a way that's really fun, cool, cool. Ellen, you're on the spot.
2: Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about the difference between training and education. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that the experience you're describing Mark, really to me speaks to what education is supposed to do. In mm-hmm. in my mind, education is supposed to lay a conceptual framework that you can choose to build on later. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to give you some context on a topic or or some part of the world that 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 you can build on um later. So you, it, laying a foundation means you know some of the related concepts, some of the the social intricacies of that area and time period and, and most importantly it sparks a little bit of curiosity. There's some yeah. you learn some things which learning changes your brain, right? You've Mm -hmm. you've created some memories and some structures in your brain around ancient Egypt, which makes it easier for you to learn more about ancient Egypt in the the past because there's stuff for those new memories to latch onto. That's what education does, is it builds structures so that you can make memories around those, you know, learn new things more quickly later on when you encounter information that relates to it. Whereas training is you got to someone has to be able to do something with something. Right, right. You know, there's, there's a con, there's an outcome. There should be a measurable outcome yeah. or an observable outcome to the experience. And both are really important. Mm-hmm. Both are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play that now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I think uh, uh, people in the e-learning space, I think would probably, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of them are chattering about it, but like, I'm sure there's things to learn and then things to uh, that, that, Ubisoft and future efforts could learn from that industry because mm-hmm. I know they brought in certainly a lot of experts in the field, but I don't know if they brought in a lot of actual like instruction designers, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, I'd be curious to know more about that project and like how it was put together, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And if they just sort of fumbled their way through it, or if they actually like turned to the industry that was good at that sort of thing, you know?
2: Well, yeah, are we good as an industry <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> about that sort of thing? It's, I don't know. I mean, I I do know a lot of instructional designers who don't work for custom shops who do work for large companies and they don't necessarily get the opportunity to approach their work with a performance oriented mindset. Yeah. Um, A lot of, a lot of instructional design practitioners are still in the position of having to churn out content. Yeah. Which I know to be very frustrating. Um, It's personally frustrating to me. I'm sure there are some people out there who like it, but I don't believe it's very effective. (laughs) It's hard to do things that you don't think work. Uh, But yeah, I, I, I believe there's a lot of overlap, and I know there are more and more people in the e-learning and in so training that's kinda, industry that's who why like that. talking about them both um, together. You know, like my yeah. my Twitter feed is kind of random um, assortment of interesting stuff, but I try to, I try to speak about games and I try to speak about instructional design because I don't think those things are too. I don't think they're very unrelated. I think yeah. there's a lot that the two fields can learn from each other for sure. Which didn't answer Stephen's question? No, it did not. <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> come back okay. to
0: that. Well, I, I had the educational example. Do yeah. you have a really good, um, like, training example that you can tell us about? <laughs>
2: um, I can give you. I can give you both. I mentioned so. I'll I mentioned the, the game example first. I did mention that earlier, which was kind of teaching me some emotional skills. But one of the best learning games, like games that I learned from ever, was Ant. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I love Ants. I love I still love that game. I learned so much about ants. <laughs> I learned so much about ants and it made me really interested in watching ants as a kid. I remember playing Semants and then going out to like my dad owned owned a business at the time. Mm-hmm. And which was awesome for me as a kid because I'd just come home from school and run around and bother the employees. <laughs> and I was for a while after playing Simand, I was stealing sugar cubes from the Oh wow. From the coffee, like the bowl of sugar cubes near the coffee. Yeah. And I would like I would take a little cup of water and I'd go find my favorite anthill and I'd put the sugar cube not, down by the anthill and I'd dump a little water on it. And then I'd just watch as the ants came and ate all the sugar. <laughs> this was really fun for me. <laughs> But I learned a lot. I rocked that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really I still I still sometimes notice when ants are doing weird things. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. It's just again, it was it wasn't that I ever have the ability to apply the skill of being an egg laying ant queen like I did in the game. Um <laughs> that's not my life. But it, it laid a framework that helped me learn a lot more about ants and mm-hmm. probably other insects. And probably, I mean, if you tie it back, probably a lot about like social what is it social insect i don't know yeah social bugs social social bugs yeah as far as uh as far as learning experiences that have taught me how to do something it's weird because uh i do take a lot of e-learning um Usually the e-learning that I'm taking is either stuff that we've made as a company mm-hmm. or it's, it's stuff that the, our clients are bringing in as an example of what their current thing is. Like, yeah. This is what we have now. We want you to make it better. So in the case of the former, I, I usually do learn a lot um, about whatever topic it is. In the case of the latter, I'm usually looking at it going, okay, this is something we can improve on. This is something mm-hmm. we could, would want to polish. I think there's an opportunity to improve something here. The, uh, the, <laughs> I always learn a ton about whatever subject matter I'm writing about as the instructional designer because I have to I have to underst- I have to be able to understand the skills well enough and the context well enough and the whole framework of performance well enough to be able to create an approximation of the experience that can be used for an instructional reason. Yeah. And one of the things that just keeps coming back is software training. Mm. Um which probably everyone thinks of as really boring <laughs> but the way that we do it is we we kind of make like a level out of it. So we give somebody a scenario, like a task in the software and we say, okay, well this customer's called in and they're, they're really upset about this. So see if you can get them back on track and if you can find their order and, and we break it up into really small pieces. Like, and each, each task is about 10 to 15 minutes long. So about like a level. And I know so many weird software environments now <laughs> that I'll never get the chance to use again because <laughs> I don't work for those companies directly, but yeah. like, I can use I can use the customer or like the call center software for a giant hotel organization. <laughs> <laughs> so like if you go and check into that hotel, like I know the software that they're using to do it, and I <laughs> could tell them how to how to check me. I could check myself in. Huh. But
0: <laughs> I, I'm I'm supremely jealous of that bank of knowledge because you know so much about UX for, through the way all these people applied it. That's going to really help you when you do your own work. Right? Yeah like the do's and don'ts so what's good and what's bad like you obviously you're just trying to teach how to use what exists mm-hmm. but like you've experienced so much of that more than most people
2: yeah and that's 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 the reason i really one of the reasons i really love the work that i do is i get to do so many different things mm-hmm. so many different things so yeah like just seeing the different software that people use at different companies yeah. and in different industries like you know three or four years ago, I was working um, on software training for a hotel company. And last year I was working on software training for an insurance company, health insurance company out in California. Mm -hmm. Like same, we were using a similar approach um, to the software training because we think that approach is really effective at getting people learning software really quickly and being able to actually apply it really quickly. Yeah, But the software was completely different and, so now I know more about health insurance than I than I did before. I mean, at least I did when I did the training. It's probably all changed, now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So it's it's probably not. It's not a really game like example, maybe, but mm-hmm. but you know, it's all connected in my mind. Yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. counts.
0: Uh, I'll accept that as a
2: an thank you. <laughs> 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 um,
0: so I mean, you're doing uh, aside from your work, your day job, you're you're making your own games now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so what's the process of learning those tools? And what have you taken from your career as an educational designer to games that maybe you don't intend to be educational? They're just games. Yeah.
2: Um, I think the, the tendency, I'm really, I'm really glad I had the ob- so many opportunities to work on this before I actually started making my own games. I don't tell people to do stuff. I, mm-hmm. I don't have the I don't have the desire. I don't have to fight against the desire to tell the player how to be successful. I just let people fail. Yeah. I just I just let people fail. And that was something we experienced at the <laughs> global game jam <Gym> too. Yeah. <laughs> we were doing some play testing. Like the entire group was around. We were watching people um, go through the game, and everyone's really excited. And it was really hard for everyone to say just kind of be silent and watch people play because you know when you develop a game, you know how it's supposed to, how how you intend for people to feel successful. Yep. And watching people not take that path can be frustrating at first. I'm so over it. I want to see people fail. Like, <laughs> I was so happy when people were dying and like had to try again. I was like, yeah, killed by the wind monster.
3: Yes.
4: <laughs> Success. I
2: was like, they don't want to go through the slime. Awesome. And I showed it to some of my coworkers like, who were gamers. And they're like, this is hard. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it's
4: hard. You should see Ellen's reaction
3: <laughs> to all of these statements <laughs> she's making. Oh,
2: <laughs> So I guess, you know, I guess if I could summarize what I'm hearing myself say is it's made me a lot less forgiving, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> meaner, uh, but no, I, I feel, I think it lets me trust. It, it's giving me a lot of trust in myself, uh-huh. um, at least in terms of the design. Like I, I, I don't feel myself changing the vision for the game that I want to make a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to, I'm going to figure out how to make this and then and then we'll be done <laughs> It'll be that game um, it also has made me it, i think it helps me like just knowing how the brain works and how the brain learns makes me a lot faster at just applying stuff so my google foo has gotten really good <laughs> like as i've i've been working with twine and i don't know much coding at all more and more but you know i don't know how to JavaScript stuff from scratch, and so now I'm like, okay, so this is what I need to do. Um, there's probably something out there already that does me, lets me do this. So let's see if I can search for exactly the right thing and find some code that I can just copy, and then tweak. So I've been getting pretty good at that, and it helps me learn the coding. But it also, you know, helps me. I've learned that it makes me more confident. Yeah. And so it's it's learning the coding, but it's also learning how to trust myself in different yeah. contexts. I think yeah.
4: that's a lot of part of like e learning and stuff. Is you want players to feel confident that they can learn these things in addition to learning the things. Yeah. So that's cool that you're getting that from making games yeah. in addition to making, playing the games. That's, that's awesome. It's, yeah. It's
2: again, it's all
3: connected. <laughs> it is
2: It's all connected. But yeah. Yeah. Learn. I mean, learn again, knowledge is great if you mm-hmm. can't apply it because you, you don't recognize the context in which you should apply the skill or you don't feel confident that you have the skills to be able to execute properly. And what's the point of the like? What what was the point of going through that experience? Yeah. If it doesn't change your your life in some way, you know, like learning for the sake of learning is amazing. Mm-hmm. Philosophically, I'm totally for that. But but creating learning experiences takes resources, and those resources should not be spent unless they are going to to change something. Yeah. For someone. Yeah. And I I don't think I don't I don't think people disagree with that. I don't think that's truly controversial. Mm-hmm. But if it's not controversial, why don't we design like that? <laughs> anyway.
0: Well, well it's nice to know that you're out there fighting that fight. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about um, managing Steven during the Global Game Jam, <laughs> but uh, I'm afraid that this is too good a note to end on, so we're going to have to end it there. Um, we'll get that at a future podcast, I hope. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so uh, where can our listeners find out more about you online? Yeah, if they're interested?
2: so I'm on Twitter at, at Ellen B. Johnson. I have an easy-to-find Twitter handle. Um, I'm also I'm also on LinkedIn, which is probably not the best place for game devs to go. I don't know. Is, is there a huge game dev community on LinkedIn? Um, my LinkedIn is not as up to date and active as I am on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm also um, if you're here in the Twin Cities and you're on the the Slack that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there. Um, so yeah, shoot me a, shoot me a tweet.
0: Yeah, yeah. for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been so Yay, much fun, thank you. and it's great to have you. And I hope we'll have you back to talk more about this topic because I feel like we could just go on and on and on and
2: on. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm really curious to see like what the listeners say and if there are additional ideas or or arguments mm-hmm. coming from from the community. So that yeah, absolutely be happy fantastic. To.
0: All right. That is our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app. Be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or a nice like us. We need to know you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends too. Ellen, will you leave a review and tell all your friends too? Yes. Okay, good. Are you you sure?
2: Hmm yes
0: okay (laughs) Uh, we want to hear directly from you as well so follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club let us know how we're doing send us your topics and ask us your questions lastly you can find more about the show your nice host our nice guest as well as get all the links and notes from this and other episodes at NiceGames.Club and so until we start again remember to play nice
1: and make nice